Hello, good afternoon everybody who's here listening in and watching. Um, welcome to Ultravision TV where we inform, educate, entertain and inspire. My name is Angela Barrows and I'm your host for today for Mindful Thoughts. And the topic we are going to be talking about today is about domestic abuse. And I know it's a very emotive topic. Um, and even more so, I'd like, a, like want to kind of say it's been in the news quite a lot as well because of COVID. People are forced to be in their in their own space together, couples, husbands, wives, and I think that's probably heightened the number of people who have experienced domestic abuse. So it has been talked about, and it is a mental health issue. And as a mental health show, what we're, what I'm wanting to do is to bring all these uncomfortable conversations about mental health issues, um, where we can have a conversation. Um, so my guest today, Ursula Myrie, is going to be sharing her story and what she's been through herself through domestic abuse and we'll be talking probably for about half an hour because we want to kind of allow enough space for people to have conversation and to ask Ursula questions um, so if you've got any questions put them in the chat or if you want to you can hold on to your questions and um, I'm going to ask you to raise your, use the icon and to raise your hand if you want to ask a question in the meantime, if I could ask everybody to mute, and I can see that everybody at the moment um, who is on here is muted already. If you can keep yourself on mute while we're having the interview and the discussion with Ursula, and then we can, I'll let you know when we're going to open up the, the floor to, to questions. Okay, if that's all right with everybody. Um, so my guest, Ursula Myrie, um, it is somebody that I know, and I have heard her story before. There's, there's a lot that she will be bringing today. Um, some of it may well trigger some people, um, may be quite emotive for, for others. I'm asking you to just take care of yourselves and um, you know, if anything becomes upsetting, either put something in the, in the message or just be, make sure that you're around someone where you can get some support. Um, yeah, so it's all about self-care and looking after yourselves, okay? So, I'm going to introduce my guest, Ursula, Ursula Myrie. Um, would you like to share some of your stories? And I'll intersperse that with a few questions and uh, that I might ask in between that as well. Okay? Yeah, that's so, absolutely fine. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm pleased Angela gave a trigger warning because no matter how many times I, I do these talks and I give a trigger warning, it's still really... People find it my story really traumatic so I really just want to emphasize um, Angela's trigger warning um, I'll be sharing uh, a lot of my my story because it, it the topic is domestic violence or, or, or domestic abuse but it's intertwined <laughs> with a lot of the things so some things I say might not you might think oh what's that got to do with domestic violence but I will explain how it, it fits in um, just a bullet point about um, me and who I am. I am a mother of two um, daughters, age 21 and 23. I am a historic rape and sexual abuse survivor. I'm also a care home abuse um, survivor. I'm a domestic abuse survivor. I'm a survivor of physical, uh, mental, emotional, psychological abuse and neglect. Um, I am a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober for over... 20 years now, but every day, <laughs> every day, I, I battle the urge and the, the thirst to just have that one drink, but yay me, I've been sober for over 20 years now. I'm also a recovering self-harmer. Um, so I want to just 
bullet point that for you in case I don't get to, to time to share the whole. I will be very respective of, of um, Ultravision's time. Um, so let me start. I, I was born here um, and I was sent to Jamaica when I was two. Um, my, my mother went to prison for prostitution and there were four siblings, so we were all scattered <laughs> because not one family member could take all four of us. So me, myself and my younger sister, who have different fathers, um, I was sent to Jamaica to live with her grandparents um, because we have different fathers. They were her grandparents and not mine. So I went to Jamaica when I was two and I was brought back to England when I was seven. At the age of two is where my abuse started, where the physical, sexual, mental and emotional abuse started, where the rape started. Um, I was beaten severely by my sister's grandmother who disliked me because I wasn't her flesh and blood. Um, I wasn't related to her in, in any way, um, except that her son chose to raise me as his daughter along with his biological child. So she abused me physically, mentally and emotionally um, for the first five years that I was, I was in Jamaica. And then her husband, my sister's grandfather, was the one who would rape and abuse me from the age of two to um, seven when I was removed from, from Jamaica. The story there goes that my mother came to visit me in Jamaica, well, visit me and my sister. And um, during the visit, she found blood and discharge in my knickers at the age of six. As you say in Sheffield, because I'm not from Sheffield, I'm from London, it all kicked off and there was a lot of um, blame. Everybody was, you know, blaming everybody else. Everybody's saying they don't know what happened to me. Why, why you know, this was, this was in my, my underwear. My mother then came back to England, say for a year, and brought me back to from Jamaica at the age of seven. And of course, as a seven-year-old child, I'm thinking, oh God, <laughs> you know, this is it. I'm I'm going to be okay now because I'm removed from that horrific situation. I'm I'm with my my mother. Everything is going to be fine. And it was simply a case of out of the frying pan into the fire, because my mother was and still is because she's still alive. The devil reincarnate. And I don't say things to derogatize or put down my mother, but if we're not honest, if we're not true, if we're not real, you're not helping anybody. And this is just the situation. My mother is still that way today. Um, she brought me over here at the age of seven and it was a case of the physical abuse that my grandmother stopped, she picked up. So my mother would beat the hell out of me till my bones broke. Um, you know, get home, work wrong, there goes a finger. Um, when she would beat you, she would beat with the old hoovers, um, the, the, the old metal ones, In because in, I'm 48 now, so you can imagine how far back we're going. Um, she would beat me with those until my bones broke. She would, you know, Jamaican, some Jamaican parents have a thing where when they're angry and they're going to hit you, they will grab whatever is there and hit you with it, whether it's pot, pan, rolling pin, broomstick, you're getting liquid. It. So everything that she could pick her hand up on and hit me with, she would until... Either my bones would break or I would pass out. Um, I remember one time she hit me so hard in my head, she split my head open and I ended up having to go to hospital on the bus because she wouldn't call the ambulance. She sent me on the bus with my older sister, who's four years older than me, to, to go to the hospital um, with my head split open. Um, in between the beatings, there was the, what I call the verbal violence. Yeah, Every day I was told I'm useless, I'm I'm worthless, me good for nothing, me dirty, me nasty, me useless, all these things every single day, just verbal, an onslaught of verbal violence from my mother. 
in between the beatings and the verbal violence and the emotional abuse and the neglect, because my people forget that neglect is a form of abuse. So my mother never hugged me. She never cuddled me. She never ever told me she loved me ever. In between that, there was the, the rape. <laughs> she would actively schedule men from the church to come in and rape and abuse me. She would keep dates, a diary of dates, times and names of who was coming on what given day from the church. They were all church leaders because she was a religious nut, um, Pentecostal, went to church seven days a week. She was also a, an evangelist, um, a choir director, you name it. She was involved in it in the church um, and she would actively schedule the leaders from the church to come in the house and rape and abuse me under the guise of they were raping the demons out of me. This is what I was told as a child, that I was very bad, I was very wicked, I was evil, um, there was demonic spirits in me, so they needed to, to get them out by raping me. So they would have weekly rape sessions um, with me as a child, um, what she scheduled in, and if I didn't, if she heard from any of these men at any time that I didn't um, engage or I would fight them or try and stop it, then she would beat me on top of it. There were times when I would have to literally jump out of a kitchen window, a bedroom window to escape um, the abuse. And that was from seven till 16. Um, in between the, the physical violence and the verbal violence and, and the psychological abuse, I attempted suicide many times um, as, a, as a young person. I was in hospital a lot for suicidal attempts. I was in hospital a lot for having uh, sexually transmitted diseases that a child from the age of seven, you know, should not be, be having. I saw my first psychiatrist when I was seven years old because I started cutting at seven. Um, that was my way of dealing with what was happening because, you know, I was taught from the womb, as are many, not all, as are many black people taught from the womb, don't talk. You don't talk. You don't say what's going on in the house. You don't say talking to the community or the church or the, the school teacher. You don't talk. So there was nowhere for my pain to go. So I started cutting. I learned from an early age that I have an unusually high pain threshold because of been so used to having my bones broken. So when I would cut, I, I wouldn't cut, you know, you, you cut and it's it hurts for me. I have to cut to bone in order to feel something because my pain threshold is so high. Um, so that was my childhood from the age of two to 16. And in between those, those um, abuses, even though the school would be involved and, and the social workers, because I wouldn't talk, and, you know, it wasn't taken as seriously back then. Um, I'm 48 now, so you're going back a long time. It wasn't domestic abuse, domestic violence wasn't taken as seriously back then. So I would talk to my, um, I wouldn't talk to anybody. And sometimes I'd run away from home. I would jump out the window to escape the rape, as I said, and I would run to the nearest police station or I would sleep on the streets as a, a seven-year-old, nine-year-old, 12-year-old, um, just to avoid um, having to go home. Sometimes I'd be brought back home by the police once they found me, or I would be brought straight into the children's home, um, where, which is why I said I'm one of the, I'm a care home abuse survivor, because unfortunately for me, this, I'm talking really fast because of time, so please bear with me, I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to cram it all in. Don't worry, um, Esther, you can, you can slow down. It's slow okay. Down. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot to take in for someone it is. listening. And there's so much of it. So, yeah, just, just you can slow it down. Yeah, okay. don't worry about it the time. We've got time. Okay, so yeah. 
I was put into care because I remember in one of my care records, it, it, it's, um, it was a police report and it said Ursula, uh, nine years old, I think I was, said, turned up at the police station in Brixton um, in her nighty, no knickers on, no uh, shoes, and there was dry blood between her legs. And that's what the policeman wrote in his report. And then, you know, it said that they, they had to call the doctor and, and take me to the hospital. And there was there were signs of, of rape. And so periodically I was put into care and I was actually in care for over two years. I was under the care of Lambeth Council, where, as you know, with London, it's not like Sheffield, where we just have one council. So you have very different councils in London. So I was put into because of the area I lived in, I was put in the care of Lambeth Council. And Lambeth Council had a, a conglomerate of care homes, but they had a main home called Shirley Oaks. And just how it worked out, because Shirley Oaks was so massive, it was like a massive mansion, uh, like a, a care home. Um, even if you were in one of the other care homes like Southvale or Stockwell Park, you would still say, oh, I'm in, I'm in Shirley Oaks. So all the homes became known as Shirley Oaks. So I was put into care, unbeknownst to me at the time, the care home was run by a paedophile ring. Um, and this paedophile ring included judges, lawyers, doctors, MPs, you name it. These people were involved in the paedophile ring and they would rotate the ring based on preference. So if you liked girls under a certain age, um, under five, you went to this home. If you liked boys, that home and they rotated the ring. So for the two years that I was in the care home, I was drugged, raped and beaten every week by whoever chose to come in to the care home at that time, but also the staff who were in the care home, the social workers, the psychiatrists who would visit, even the female staff were complicit in um, covering up the abuse that was happening. Um, and it was only four years ago when a black man in London um, was in a conversation with his friend and it came out that the friend had been raped and abused as a child while he was in care. And the black man asked him, where was this? And he said, Shirley Oaks. And the black man said, but I was in Shirley Oaks. So how is it that two friends who, you know, weren't friends as kids were in the same care homes, were abused, raped, sexually beaten in the same way. Um, and he decided to set up something then called the Shirley Oaks um, Survivors Association to take on Lambeth Council for three years. Because um, I joined that association as one of the Shirley Oaks survivors. We fought. <laughs> We fought tooth and nail with Lambeth Council. And for three years, Lambeth Council denied it and said we were lying. It didn't happen. There was no rape. There was no abuse. There was no cover up. Bearing in mind, the homes were opened in the 30s and didn't close till the 80s. So you can imagine how many of us children went through that abuse at that time. And it was only when Theresa May, the only decent thing that woman has ever done in her life, <laughs> She went into the House of Commons one day. I don't know what happened behind closed doors. And she publicly said to Lambeth Council, look, this did happen. You know it happened and you need to own it. And the next morning, Lambeth Council released a very public statement um, that went nationwide that said, we did know the care home was run by a paedophile ring. We did know they were drugging, raping and beating the children. We did cover it up and we're very sorry. And today it has become the biggest um, sexual abuse scandal in the history of this country. At the time when the story broke, 700 of us came forward as survivors. To date, there are 2,600 Shirley Oaks abuse survivors that have come forward. Um, we're scattered all over the world because obviously people have left and emigrated and things. Um, to date, only 13 people have gone to prison for the abuse that happened in those care homes. Some died, some fled when the story broke but 13 people have gone to prison. And that for me will always be the only form of justice I ever have. Mm. I will never take my mum to 
to court because there's no point. Her body is, is basically breaking down on itself now. Um, she's got arthritis and, and the, the liquid in her joints between the joints of her, her body is, is evaporated. So, you know, her bones are rubbing against it. She's just very disabled and she'll mostly be completely bedridden within a year. Um, so that was my childhood. And I spoke about that because we need to understand that whenever we say domestic abuse, we always think of adults. We automatically think of adults and we forget that children experience domestic abuse, domestic violence in the form of rape or verbal violence or physical abuse or psychological abuse. And it can impact them right into childhood. So that's why I had to mention my my childhood to let you know that that's where my domestic violence started in the home at the hands of my mother and the church leaders. When I left home at 20, um, I got married at 20. Well, going back, I was 20 when I left home. And by the time I left home, I was a, 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 a severe alcoholic. But I was a functioning alcoholic because I, I couldn't even get drunk anymore. So I was very capable of, you know, holding down a full time job and just being that person that nobody suspected was al was an alcoholic. And I went out clubbing one day when I was 20 with a girlfriend of mine at the time and um, we were in the club and I just remember taking a sip from this glass and this was before people were drugging people's drinks so I didn't think anything of it I took a sip from a glass of wine and I said to my friend I don't feel well and she said well, you don't look good let's go in the toilet and went in the toilet that's the last thing I remember I woke up in the hospital and the doctor basically said to me look Miss Myrie it's either you stop drinking or you'll be dead within a year because what's left of your liver cannot take anymore. Because I started drinking when I was nine. As you know, in a Caribbean household, there, I don't know what it's like now, but I know when I was growing up, there was always alcohol, mm. always alcohol in the house because black parents just couldn't bake anything <laughs> without putting alcohol in it. So there was always alcohol. So me and my sister learned from an early age that rum and vodka look like water. So we would drink it and water it back down. Um, and I started drinking um, because I found that cutting wasn't enough. It wasn't working. It wasn't dealing with the trauma. So I started drinking at nine. By the time I was 20, I was a serious alcoholic. As I said, ended up in hospital. It took me maybe two years to stop drinking. But when I did, it was like, you know, having a, a, both legs are broken and you've got two crutches and then somebody removes one. Um, so I, I needed another crutch and I couldn't find one. So I upped <laughs> the self-harming um, because I, I didn't have the, 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 the drink anymore. And also to deal with the, the memories of, of the trauma, because that's why I drank. That's why I, I cut. That's why I behaved the way I did. That's why I was bad to the bone as a child and would fight man, woman and child. Anybody I would fight. I was a very angry child. I had a awful awful temper um and then i got married at the age of 25 to my now ex-husband who was nigerian so you can imagine the clash of those two cultures <laughs> coming together because uh, nigerian men tend to like their women to be very passive very submissive you should never marry a jamaican then if you're expecting that because <laughs> you know we're just i'm personally just not that i am the first i will respect my man to the hill he's the head of the house by all means but you know, there is a line. Um, so for six years, I was married to him. He beat me for two, through two pregnancies um, for six years. And when I told him I wanted a divorce, when my children were four and six, he tried to kill me three times. And so it was then that the police said, you know, I took up restraining order after restraining order. And the police said, look, this, this isn't working. Back then, you're going back 20 odd years now, because my eldest is 21. 
domestic violence wasn't taken as seriously as it is now. So the men would tend to get a little tap on the wrist and, you know, told not to do it again. And they break the restraining order and the, the, the courts didn't care. So after he tried to kill me three times and tried to kidnap my children from the school twice, because he knew that if he could get them to Nigeria, I would never see them again. That was when I knew, OK, <laughs> I have to leave. The police came to me and said, listen, you know, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to move. Which I, I didn't think was fair because I felt like, well, why should it have to be me that leaves? Why should it have to be me that moves? Why doesn't he change his behavior? But anyway, we ended up moving here. We moved here um, 15 years ago to Sheffield. We moved into a refuge for women fleeing domestic violence. We lived in there for seven months. Um, the... The first two weeks that we were in there, bearing in mind, I'm because of my mental health issues, I don't do change. I struggle with change because of, you know, my, being so reactive to my childhood all the time, not knowing when you were going to get hit or punched or kicked or raped. So I'm constantly living on edge. So I, I need to control my environment and, and people around me so that I'm not constantly startled by change. So for me, leaving London, you know, my home, my car, everything I'd lost, my family, my friends, my children's um, friends, school, and to move into a strange city where I didn't know anybody, I didn't have any friends, I didn't have any family, I couldn't tell my friends or family where I was because they were very complicit in my husband's abuse. Um, and for the first two weeks, we, we were here in the refuge and my daughter woke up in the middle of the night coughing. She's an asthmatic and... I knew something was wrong. You just, you know, they say a mother knows something just wasn't right. And so I took her to the doctor in the morning and it was while I was in the doctors with her that I was holding her in my arms. I had my five-year-old by my side, my four-year-old in my shoulder. And I just felt her body go like this. And I turned her face around and she stopped breathing in the doctor's surgery. All these doctors came out. I said to the, the receptionist, you know, something's wrong with my child. She came out, took her to the hospital um, I remember, I never forget the doctor coming down the corridor, <laughs> just knew that it was, the way this man's body language was, I just knew it was going to be good news. And he said, um, Miss Myrie, sit down. And I said, no, what, what's going on? And he said, well, here's the thing, your daughter has pneumonia and the medication we're giving her for uh, the pneumonia isn't working because of her underlying issue, which is the asthma. Um, the, the fluid and, and cold and everything has built up on her chest and gone into her lungs. The lungs have collapsed and um, that's putting a strain on the other organs. So the heart is failing, the kidneys failing, the liver is failing. If you have any friends or family, call them and tell them to come now because um, your daughter will not survive the night. She'll be dead within 24 hours. And I remember looking at this man like he was mad because I'm thinking, I've lost everything. <laughs> All I've got left is the clothes I'm standing in and my two children. And you're now telling me that one of them is dying? Hey, okay. I remember just saying to him, okay, because I, I, how I function is I put things into boxes in my head. As soon as something happens, I have to compartmentalize very, very quickly. And um, so people say I'm cold. I'm not cold because I'm not dealing with the situation. I'm just putting things into boxes so I can deal with it rationally. What's the point of me running around the hospital screaming? How's that going to happen? So I stood there and I thought, okay, this is what I need to do. So I said, right, when it's time, just, you know, um, can you take all the tubes and put her in my arms? Because I want her to die in my arms with her sister next to her. I can't call any friends or family because my friends and family will wrap me out to my ex-husband and let him know where I am. And he will come and finish the job he tried to start in terms of killing me. So it's just going to be me and my children here. So we spent that time in hospital over the, the the few weeks that she was in there every day she's you know she's not going to make it going to make it um, when she yeah yeah i'm going to bed so could Sorry. i just ask everybody thank you
Then she got better. Um, they still don't know why. I'm sure on her thing, it says miracle on her medical records. And then we moved out of the refuge seven months later and seven months to the day, woke up in the middle of the night, same thing happened. She's coughing, she's wheezing, recognized the signs, rushed her to hospital, same thing, word for word. Miss Myrie, sit down. Miss Myrie, your daughter has pneumonia. Miss Myrie, kidney, heart failing, everything terrible, 24 hours to live. <sighs> I remember at that time saying to God, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. <laughs> so tired, God. I, I can't keep going through this over and over and over, you know, from childhood to every time there's just always something, you know, how much can one human being take? So if I say she got better, came home, and then the first six years of our lives here in Sheffield, we spent in the refuge in the in the hospital. The doctors used to tease us that they were going to name a ward after Tyra <laughs> because we spent so much time there, and she knew every doctor in the children's hospital, right down to the cleaners. She just knew everybody because we spent so much time in there. After six years, they found the medication that worked for her. And then they say to me, oh, but um, it's too expensive. And we only give it to people who have the most severe asthma. And I just told them my favorite sentence when it comes to dealing with people like this. See you in court. Because there was no way I was going to let them get away with, you know, my daughter is the most severe. So we fought, we got her the medication. It took about a year for it to proper kick in, proper to work for her. Because up till that point, she couldn't walk up two steps. Not two flights, two steps. So getting a medication that worked for her was just absolutely brilliant. In between this story, I've spent a lot of time in psychiatric wards because as soon as I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, a fear kicked in me, my first daughter, that I have never felt in my life. I went to every doctor, every therapist, every psychologist, every psychotherapist I could find, and I asked them all the same question as soon as I knew I was pregnant. Will I do the same thing to my child that was done to me? Will I allow men to rape her? Will I beat her and boss her up and tell her she's ugly and stupid and useless and worthless? Will I do those things to her that was done to me? Because we know that a lot of people who are abused in turn grow up and abuse and become abusers themselves. And my fear was that I was going to do that. And I remember I was in mental health mode for the first seven months of my, what I mean by that is I was stuck. So I wasn't thinking rationally. I was stuck in mental health. So when I reached seven months and I asked the final doctor and he said, look, the same thing every other doctor and therapist has said to me, Miss Myrie, until that child is born, we won't know how you're going to treat her because we don't know how you're going to feel, whether you will love her or you won't love her, or you'll accept her or you won't accept her. So I said to him, okay, then I want a termination. And he looked at me and he said, Miss Myrie, you're seven months it's it's too late for a termination but i was in mental health mode i wasn't hearing that i said to him so you're not going to give me a termination he said no i said okay then no problem i walked out of his office i found the first flight of stairs i could and i threw myself at seven months pregnant headlong down the flight of stairs i almost killed myself almost broke my spine i spent two months in hospital on a spine board um to help to fix the the, the damage to my spine and as soon as I, you know, in London, you have King's College Hospital and then you've got the Maudsley Mental Ward across the street. As soon as I was able to leave the hospital, they wheeled me over straight into the Maudsley because they knew I was not going to stop trying to kill this child. Because my 
mindset at the time was I would rather kill her inside me than to bring her into this world and mess her up so that she be becomes the, the, the adult that I am, damaged and, and messed up and can't function properly and can't function in relationships and seeks out relationships where I can be abused or I can be beaten or I can be hurt because that's love. That's what love is. That's all I know is that abuse is love. And so I wanted to kill her, but when she was born, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, <laughs> I felt this overwhelming sense of love and protection that began the minute she was born. As soon as she was born and they tried to, you know, she's born and she's got blood and everything. And so they're trying to clean her. I wouldn't let them touch her because I thought, oh my God, they're going to hurt her. They're going to abuse her. They're going to be doing something while the doctor's back is turned and he's, he's weighing her. He's going to be doing something to her. And that was the beginning of my life with social services <laughs> because for the first three weeks, I wouldn't sleep when I brought her home because I felt sure my husband was going to rape her, that he was going to abuse her. I wouldn't allow anybody to touch her. The midwife would come and try and visit and weigh her. I wouldn't allow her. And at three weeks old, because I wouldn't, I hadn't slept for three weeks, I had her in my arms in the rocking chair one day and I fell asleep with her in my arms and she fell to the floor. Thank God it was thick carpet, rushed her to the hospital. She was fine. But that was when social services came and got involved and said, right, either you go into a mother and baby unit for mothers with mental health issues or we remove your child because you are too protective of her and they saw that as a safeguarding issue so I was put into a mother and baby unit um for a few months where they would you know put blocks of time to try and get me used to not having her and you know not seeing her and it didn't work <laughs> um when they were nine and eleven was when the social services said look you know because they were still sleeping in my bed at nine and eleven and they said look this is not healthy um you have to put them in their own room and I had a three-bed house um, and when I did, when I was forced to do that, I went out and bought two baby monitors at nine and 11, because I just needed to still be able to, to have that control where, because I was worried that even at nine and 11, they'd stop breathing or, you know, just all these things are a result of trauma mm -hmm. in my childhood and the result of the abuse in my childhood. So I came here when I was, uh, I think it was 30 or somewhere along that line. I wasn't diagnosed with anything until I was 33. I was diagnosed at 33 with borderline personality disorder and I'd never heard of it, didn't know what it was, went home, Googled it and it was tick, 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 tick. That's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And for the first time in my life, I understood everything. That was the first time I understood that I wasn't, I didn't have demonic possession because I was taught my entire life that my mental health issues were demonic possession, voodoo, witchcraft, smutty, orbiami. Um, evil eye but I believed because I'm a Christian and I, I stand by my religious beliefs I believed because I was told by my mother in the church that, the, that, that they were raping the demons out of me so it was demonic possession so to have a, a a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and to understand that it's caused by uh, rape and abuse or sexual abuse or trauma in childhood that made me think okay so I'm not mad I'm not stupid I'm not weak I'm not pathetic it's happened. I have this mental illness because of what was happening in my in my childhood. Um, so that was my 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 story. That that is my my story. Where am I now? Um, as I said, I'm the mother to two girls, 21 and uh, 23. We have <laughs> the most amazing, feral, <laughs> uh, amazing, happy, 
weird relationship. We laugh so much. We are so close. We are, I'm very affectionate, overly affectionate mm-hmm. with my children, um, <laughs> which they completely complain about. But then they're the same kids that will come and sit on my lap at 21 and be like, mommy, can I have a cuddle? You know, you can't have it both. You can't win with kids. So, you know, that's my relationship with them. But I broke the cycle. I broke the cycle of abuse. How did I break it? By having breakdown after breakdown after breakdown. Because I'm, the first time I wanted to hit my child is when she was two. I gave, she wanted a drink and I gave it to her and forgot to put the lid on for two, you know, you know the sippy cup. So I gave it to her without the lid and it, she went to drink it and it just went everywhere and on the carpet and everything. And I remember sitting, looking at this two-year-old and my first thought was to give her a kick right across the room into the wall. That was my first thought. And I stood there and thought, kick the crap out of her. And then I was like, no, but if I do that, it's going to hurt her. And do you remember how you, yeah, but it's not fair that I can't kick her because that's what happened to me. And that's all I know. So I need to kick her and block something, bust her up, do stuff. No, because it's going to damage her. And then it, and snap. My mind snapped because the battle was kick her, don't kick her, hurt her. It's not fair. Why can't I kick her? Why can't I do what? And it's been like that for years. I've grown up very jealous of my own children. I'm still jealous to this day of them. I look at them and think as they were growing up. So that's what a two-year-old looks like who's happy, who's not abused. That's what a nine-year-old, that's what a 20-year-old, that's what a 21-year-old. So that would have been me at 21. I would have been this happy. I would have been this mentally and emotionally and psychologically healthy. That's where I am with my children. I broke the cycle. They are mentally, emotionally, and psychologically healthy, but there is damage there. There is damage there from having seen their mum break down and, and go into care and, 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 and um, you know, have all these issues. So there is some damage there. And I've said to them, before you get married, go to counselling. Before you go into a relationship, go to counselling to combat the things that you've experienced, seen, heard and went through. Go to counselling, my children. My eldest now, she's 23. She graduated university last year, just to show you where they're at. Um, she was studying psychology and counselling. Um, she wants to be a child psychotherapist. She also started her own waist speeds business, which has gone international. <laughs> it's doing very well. My youngest, the baby, she's still at university. She's in her last year. She's studying psychology and criminology because she wants to be a forensic psychologist but while she was in uni of her last year she started her own hairdressing business which she just managed through me to get her first contract um, with Sheffield Health and Social Care to do the hair of all the black people on the psychiatric wards in Sheffield. Where am I now with my life? I'm in a good place. I haven't been on antidepressants for years. As I said, I am a recovering alcoholic and I'll always be a recovering alcoholic because I fight that thirst and that need to take a drink every day. Um, my mental health up and down, but it's been in a brilliant place for years. I started my own um, company uh, eight years ago, Adira, mental health and well-being services that supports black people with mental health issues. Um, we support black people because there is no services out there that are culturally appropriate, culturally sensitive or culturally competent enough for us. So instead of black people having breakdown crisis, mental ward, it's breakdown crisis, Adira, and we catch them before they reach there. we Some of the projects that we launch is in the chat. We have a black hair care project, which gives black people the opportunity, black people with mental health issues, the opportunity to get their hair done for free. Um, we're also gonna be going into the care homes because we've got so many of our elderly black people sat in that wheelchair with them head looking dry and picky. 
because these white people don't know how to manage black hair. So we'll be doing that. As I said, we've got a contract now through the psychiatric wards to do the hair of all the black people in all the psychiatric wards in Sheffield. Um, somebody opened their big mouth to Rotherham Health and Social Care. So they've called us to ask us to go over there as well and do it. But we are planning to do this in every city in England. Um, we are launching this year the Black Hair Care um, Project where we're teaching people, black people, how to manage their own hair, how to look after their hair, especially young people, how to plait, comb, weave, but also teaching white people. If you have a, a mixed race child or if you work in the foster care system um, and you're a white foster carer, how to care for that black child's hair. So we're doing that. And then my favorite project we're launching this year ever, um, Daddy Hair Care. Mm. Oh, this will be a space for men, just for men to come and learn how to do hair, whether they want to learn how to do it, their wife's hair, their son, their daughter, um, to come and learn how to do he um, hair. We offer a listening service at Adira, um, which is where we trained black listeners to listen to other black people, black volunteers, because, you know, when we first did it, black, the, the, the volunteers are like, why do we have to be trained to listen? I said, listen, I wanted to call it fix your face listening, <laughs> because in the black community, we have these facial expressions that are just not helpful. And if you're in a, a listening environment and a person comes and says, listen, my husband is beating me, but me love him and I me no want to leave him. And you're, that's not helpful. Fix your face. Because as soon as somebody sees that, they're going to think, well, I don't want to talk to you then, do I? Because, you know, <laughs> your face isn't encouraging. So we have the listening service. We have the Black Hair Care Project. We've stopped taking referrals because since lockdown happened, we've become completely overwhelmed. Um, I love, I've never been paid for running a diary. I run it voluntarily. I do 60 to 70 hours a week. And I love it. It's like medicine for my for my mental health. I wouldn't do anything else. I always say to people, I am the managing director. I'm the CEO of Adira. But let me be clear. You very rarely find me in my office. When people say, where's Ursula? She's on somebody's kitchen floor, <laughs> on somebody's bedroom floor, on somebody's toilet floor. Because when I get there, that's where I find them. And I'm not telling them, get up, come and quit talk. No, I'm getting down there, on that floor with them. And when you're ready... When you finished crying, let's get up together. So that's where you will find me. Um, that's where my life is now. I've talked, I've gone five minutes over. I'm really sorry. Um, so any question, can I just say this, please? I say this all the time, every time when I do training or, or I talk, at anything. there is no question that you can ask me that's too personal, too deep, too rude, Anything you want to ask me, please ask me. I am an open book and I can only help you if you ask me. Back to you, Angela. Wow. I just, I'm glad you stopped there, Esther, because I was thinking you might have run out of, of breath. Because <laughs> there was so much. And I know I've heard your story before, but every time I hear it, there's there are new things that, you kind of maybe not spoken about it's been a while since i've heard it but and i'm i'm wanting to talk now just so that you can take a breath because i normally i would interview people by asking them questions in between but i just think that i allowed you to have that moment just to share everything in one go and i don't think i've ever met anybody even in the work that i do as a therapist that has gone through what you've gone through from the age, from such a young age, and to still be sitting here today. So credit to you for 
or however you've managed to get to this point and still be here and I'm so glad that you are here to share your story because I imagine there are so many thousands of people who may have gone through similar things, may have gone through some of what you've gone through and have not been able to cope and have taken their lives and they're no longer here to, t to share their story. And what you have gone through and the amount of stuff that you've gone through and the variety of things that you've gone through you know, I'm looking in the chats and people are just saying that, you know, they can't believe that you've gone through so much. And, that, you know, the story that you've shared is, is, is inspiring, it's just life-affirming that, you know, somebody who's gone through what you've gone through is still here and that you are doing the same thing for others that you didn't get. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I know... Well, we know because I, I do I do quite a lot of work with a with a diary for, for that reason because I know that you set it up with people in mind who may have gone through the exact same thing as what as what you've gone through. Yeah. So you know I applaud you. You know and even in the chat, people are got their hands up. They 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 want to ask loads of questions, but I just thought let me just give you a chance just to just to take a breath. Um, and I want to say you know at this point thank you so much for sharing so much. Um, it's such a short space of time, and I know that it was quite quick because yeah. there's so much to talk about, and I really appreciate that. Um, so let me, you know, open up the floor to um, to questions. I'm not quite sure. I can see Carol wanting to speak, Dee wanting to speak, and Mon wanting to speak. I wasn't aware of yes. who of who had the hand up first, but I'm just working from from left to right. That's all right. So Carol, if you'd like to ask your question. Ask your question to Ursula. Hi. Um, hello. <coughs> Sorry. Hello, Ursula. Um, I, I was very, um, wow. Okay. What I am, um, I'm a Christian and um, I want to say, I just can't equip what you've gone through. But um, I wanted to find out, do you, you blame God or do you still believe in God? Hey. That's such a simple question, dear God. Uh, believe me. When I was a child, up until I reached Sheffield um, at 30-something, I blamed God. Um, so for the age of two to 30-something, I blamed God, and I was so angry because I literally backslid from church when I was 20, went back when I was 25, um, but that relationship wasn't there because when my husband was beating me and I would talk to the pastor about it, he was Pentecostal, he'd get a Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible says, um, a wife must be submissive to her husband. Do you think your husband is beating you because you're not submissive enough, my sister? Go home and submit yourself more to your husband and the beatings will stop. So for the longest time, I blame God. I blame the people in the church. Now, I think it was after I got my diagnosis. Um, and then, no, it was after I, I decided to start a diary that I began to slowly recognize, listen, there was a reason. Yes, man. <laughs> you know, even when the men were raping me, I'd be screaming as a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, God, why, 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 where are you, where are you, where are you? And it was only when I started a diary and realized that people would, who were in that position then would look at me and be like, oh, please, you can't tell me nothing. Look at you, you, you got clothes, you got car, you got this, you're okay, you've never been through nothing. And as soon as I share my story, they'd be like, oh, you do get it. Oh, you do understand. And that was a way in for me. And I realized that if I hadn't been through what I'd been through, I wouldn't have been able to reach as many people as I have. So I don't blame God. If anything, I am 
thankful now because I didn't understand the scripture back then um, that says in everything, give thanks. Um, so now I am thankful for everything I've went through because it's enabled me to help other people. Mm -hmm. So I don't blame God. I am grateful to God for what I went through. So thank you for that um, question, Carol, because I always believe that in, you know, in the worst case scenarios, there's always something good that comes out of it. And I, like I said, I'm glad that you're here because your work now is incumbent of supporting those people who may have gone through similar things to, to yourself. So I'm, I'm certainly agree, agree with that. Um, I'm going to move over to, um, I couldn't remember, I'm not quite sure if, if D. Angela. Yeah, who's saying Angela? Me, Ursula. Oh, sorry, Ursula. Yeah. The reason I've put that picture in the chat, the one with the broken cup, and then it's turned into a vase, is yeah. because that is that is me. Yeah. You know, those are my that, that cup was pieces of my broken life, and I wanted people to see that you can pick up those pieces and turn them into something beautiful. Yes, and that's true. There's, some, there's something in a in a Chinese um, culture where they they broken pottery is put together but it's put together with gold oh so that's like you said it's a piece that can come together and still be something that is, is useful and yeah. hi Steve, Steve yeah hi yes. hi hi thank you yeah sorry i hope you can hear me um, yeah, yeah. Background. there's a bit of background Thank you. Take care. Just, she gone? Okay. Mon, I'm going to come to you next if you'd like to ask your question. Ashay, everybody. Um, I just wanted to thank you, first of all, Angela, for another fantastic show. And Ursula, I am in awe of this goddess. I am, oh, I don't want to get emotional. I am so sorry for all that you've been through. But I am so proud of the resilience and the strength that you've actually given to the world in terms of taking your life in your hands and turning everything around for the greater good of the many. Um, you know, I want to wish you all the very best in the future for you and your children and everybody else, every life that you're going to touch and inspire. And may you continue to rise as a goddess that you are, sis. Thank you. Always. That's it. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. Okay. Thank you, Ma. Um, I'm going to go to Kerry next. If you'd like to ask uh, a question. Yeah. Hi. Thank you, Ursula. Um, immense. Uh, very immense. Very emotional listening to your story. Um, thank you for sharing your story. Very relatable. Um, your label that they give you, the diagnosis, EUPD, we understand that that's given to many people now. It's very relatable. I have the same label, except for the, with the EUPD, same similar thing. Um, so you're relatable. The fact of what, where you are now doing a project and what you know now, do you feel that your own mother went through the same thing but couldn't find the voice as a victim herself in order to put that uh, learnt behaviour onto yourself? She did. I mean, it was about... Because I hadn't spoken to my family for about the first 13 years that I moved to Sheffield. And then when I, my nephew reached out to me and said, and auntie, I've had a baby 
them. I don't care what's going on with the family. It's nothing to do with me. Can you come to my baby's christening? That was when I went back to, to connect with my family. And I remember I had to have a big conversation with my kids about it because I said to them, listen, my family is toxic and evil. And, you know, if we go down this route, I just want you to be prepared that this is what mommy has protected you from all these years. And one of the things, the steps I did was I said, okay, I will come to the christening, but I'm going to go and see my mom before I come. And I'm going to speak to her. I'm going to, you know, I, I found the strength now to challenge her about what she did. And I sat with my, I left my kids in Sheffield because I didn't want them in that mess. And I sat with, in my mom's house, the same house where I was raped and beaten for all those years. And I spoke with her for four hours straight. And in those four hours, she never said a word. She let me talk for four hours. When I finished, was that all I talked about was everything that I remembered because there are gaps in my memory because of the BDP. But everything I remembered about the rape and the abuse and the violence and how she facilitated that. When I finished, that woman folded her arms, <laughs> looked at me and said, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't remember any of that. And I said to her, because my sister lives around the corner from my mom's school in London, I said to her, okay, let me go and get my sister. Because this also happened to her. And as soon as I said that, she went, oh, no, 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 no. Um, I'm not saying, I, you know, I didn't do anything, but um, I didn't know any better because that's what my mother did to me. And if you meet my grandmother, who's nearly 100, I don't know what's keeping that woman alive, I swear to God, because she's the most bitter, angry, hate-filled woman you can meet, my grandmother. And it's just been like that. And my, you know, when I was growing up, I heard stories of my mom being abused as a child or beaten as a child. And while I accept that to an extent, I do. But at the same time, when you know better, you do better. So I do feel like because she hasn't changed even after we left home, she's still that wicked, toxic, violent, poisonous woman. I'm hearing it all the time from my sister who still lives in London. I can't accept that. that that's why she did that because she didn't know any better because I could have used that excuse mm -hmm. to batter my picnic them, rock up them hand and rock up their foot and, and put them in hospital and let men rape them under the guise of, I didn't know any better. Yeah. So I'm sorry if that sounds, you know, unhelpful, but that's just how I feel. I can't accept that as an excuse. I, I, I really totally admire your story. Most of it is, it's a, a lot of it is very, very relatable and it picks up the, the about the children how you do want to protect your children it's it's very triggering today um very but understandable is is no words needed you're very relatable i see where you are and i think where you are in your business is that what you feel that keeps your business is you isn't it it keeps you yeah. alive so you are the project you are the business yeah. and and with and with that that's that's what's keeping you a sense of purpose keeping you going to keep others going i get it thank you so yeah. much yeah. thank you for that kerry and um, there are a couple of questions i'll come back to about something that kerry just mentioned about you know your mom and um what um you know what it's like when you had that conversation with her but i'll come back to that i'll just want to bring in um paulina if you'd like to ask a question pauline if you could unmute your mic. Can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Hi. <laughs> morning. Morning, Yesela. You know I can't miss this one. Morning, everybody. Afternoon, like I said. Well, um, 
jumping in and seeing Isla speak, I mean, Isla knows my background. Um, I think she's one of the main person that I usually, when things get hectic for me, I run to, especially, sorry. Especially when I found out my own daughter I get it. I get it. I get everything she's saying. The constant battle that you battle with yourself every day, and being a mom, it doesn't make it easier. And being a mom of a a, a daughter as well, a female child, it it, it just doesn't make it easier. And um, for me, yes, like how you doing it? Because uh, I don't know how you doing it. I don't know how. I don't know how you can speak to your mom. I still can't speak to mine because it's still the same thing. It's still the same victim blaming. Um, I still have my abusers following me all over social media because they've been sponsored by my own family. I still have everyday text messages being called a rapist and a monster. This is an everyday thing. And having to see Amika go through that, I completely shut down. Mm. But Mm. Isla, thank you, because I couldn't, I didn't have anybody to speak to about what Amika was going through. you know, it was shocked to me, but at the same time, I had it at the back of my head that it's somehow um, what I've been through as a child and also with their father and their family, that side of the family as well, how they come, you know, and um, it shocked me. I mean, having to call you that day and you made me feel, you made me feel alive. In so many ways. I know I get a lot of flack for the person that I am being too loud, being for, so I'm too much for most people, and that's fine. I've kind of got that, accepted that, and moving past that. What I cannot move past is because I'm a very, I'm very strong on family, you see? Everything I did, I did for the acceptance of my mom and of my brother and of you know, families and stuff. Being that I went through sexual abuse from all of my uncles, my cousins, um, then having to have children, which I didn't even know, I'm still trying to figure out where I am. My question to you is this, Ezra. How do you figure out, obviously, you've been diagnosed with BPD, I'm shaking when I talk about this thing because it's something that sometimes I don't want to talk about at all. I will completely... How do you then move forward from that? I mean, I've tried going through the NHS and I got told that I was classed as probably somebody who's going to murder somebody, but I don't see myself as a a murderer, obviously. Um, I'm seeing myself as a nurturer. So how do you then kick down these doors for you to be fully diagnosed and 
find out to the core what's going on because at the minute I'm with different agencies that are telling me my mind is too complex for them to help me because so every day I wake up I go for a run to try and figure out why is it that I am so complex to get help open the doors go to different places just to try and stay within it whilst i'm still raising my children they're still young you know that is 16 is still a baby 13 is still a baby and a nine-year-old is still a baby now my nine-year-old is struggling to understand me because he constantly asks me questions that i can't even answer because he doesn't even know who i am he knows Mommy's happy, mommy's down, mommy's in between. Oh, then mommy goes to the kitchen, mommy's extremely happy. He doesn't understand why I just cannot be fully happy and content to just spend that oh, one-on-one one one with them without not having to run away from them because it's just too much, you know? How do you go past that? And for me, every time I've spoken about it, for my family, I've been told that I'm attention-seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to take my own life five times. Um, I ended up in a mental health unit. Um, I've been told by my family, I got laughed at so many times. Every time I called out for help, I got laughed at constantly. To this day, we're in 2021, I'm still getting laughed at by my family. I'm still getting things thrown at me by my family. I mean, I've blocked everything, but it's hard when third parties come through. So obviously, I know you've gone through this thing because your story is like, I'm walking in your story. Okay, let me... Sorry. 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 Okay. Just take a breath. Yeah, take a breath. And I'll let Mersla come back to you, but just take uh, just take a moment, okay? <sighs> Thank you for, for being so open and honest. Can, can, can I say something? Mersla, would you like to respond to Paulina? Yeah, I just want to say, first of all, I haven't spoken to my mum since then. Since the conversation, um, because I recognise that she hasn't changed, and she's a cancer. Um, and I can't afford to allow her to stay in my life and destroy my mental health. Um, mm-hmm. So I haven't spoken to her since then, and I'm good with that. 